Hello there, you Awakening Wonders on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. We really appreciate you, our listeners, and want to bring you more content. We will be delivering a podcast every day, seven days a week. Every single day, you'll get a detailed breakdown of current topics that the mainstream media should be covering. But if they are covering, they're amplifying establishment messages and not telling you the truth. Once a week, we bring you in-depth conversations with guests like Jordan Peterson, RFK Jr., Sam Harris, Vandana Shiva, Gabor Mate, and many more. Now enjoy this episode of Stay Free with Russell Brand. Remember, there's an episode every single day to educate and elevate our consciousness together. Stay free and enjoy the episode. Greg, hey, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's uh, I'm very excited to be here. I love you, Russell. Even though we've had a checkered past, I've always loved you. It's interesting, isn't it? We are, in a sense, I would say very much the Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor of the, of the world of punditry, shall we say? Because, yeah, you and I, like, I remember, like you say, like, I remember the first time I was aware of you, you were saying, I knew this guy when I lived in the UK. I liked him then. And now he's become an, an asshole, I think, or an ass at least. And, uh, and like, I was like, oh, what's going on? And, uh, but actually, it's like, do you think, what does this indicate? Has the culture changed? Because I suppose you would have once been given that I first saw you on Fox News associated with, you know, we all know what we associate Fox News with. Is it libertarianism? Is it populism? Is it conservatism? Is it sort of like right wing Christianity? There's a sort of a whole group of ideas around Fox News. And then like um, and I was a sort of uh, exiled from Hollywood uh, bratish show off, you know, online. So um, and yet somehow we found ourselves agreeing about a lot of issues what do you think's changed in the culture greg to for us to have found this alliance that's a good question i i mean i feel like i was always an oddball Mm. in any employment i was in i mean i was the editor of men's health and i was smoking and drinking um when i was at maxim i was uh engaging in mostly homoerotic humor to subvert the audience and at Fox, I wasn't like the other anchors. And I was I I was always interested in you. I always found you interesting. And I knew there was something there that I identified with. And I think that's why I was so frustrated when I, I don't even I can't even remember why I was sh- shitting on you. I can't remember why. It, but it, the, this is the flaw of doing 24 hour cable news. I probably saw a clip and I needed to fill a bucket. And so I use that clip and then I go, this guy, who knows what you were talking about? You probably don't even remember. I don't remember. But that's what we did. And then you see it. You go, wow, why is this guy doing it? And then you came back and then you you said I had a face like an anus. And um, which I in some ways is realistic. We, You know, there's an orifice. That's everyone's face, Greg. That's not unique to you. You don't look like an anus. And I'd like to take this opportunity to unreservedly apologize to you for being rude. And I think what the videos were, it was when Bill O'Reilly was the most prominent Fox News voice. And I used to, I think, do little videos commenting on Bill O'Reilly's content. But also the same way that I've always done with, um, let's call them Fox-style pundits, over time and and, and while watching them, developing a kind of effect because I'm old enough to recall that when when 
a family would contain people that were of the left and of the right. And that wouldn't be cause for actual hatred and condemnation. You wouldn't refer to people who had different political views as a basket of deplorables. You wouldn't say that half of the population shouldn't be allowed to vote or should be debugged. You wouldn't escalate a kind of a populist demagogue to the sort of heights of a 20th century military dictator. Everything has become more incendiary, more uh, conflagratory, I, sh I, I would say. So it's like then, even 10 years ago, when we were first communicating, albeit through um, <laughs> aggressive... Uh, hit pieces on one another, the world was less filled with invective and, and, and something has become, something's become concentrated and amplified, Greg, hasn't it? Yeah, you know what it is? It, I mean, you could trace it back to the, the phrase political correctness because that used to be a positive attribute in the sense that I'm morally superior to you and you have to reach this point, but then I keep getting higher and then that turned into... Well, the political became so personal and you were supposed to keep it separate. It, like when you talk about family gatherings, you could have Bill O'Reilly as your uncle yeah. and I could be your nephew and it didn't really matter. And you would sit at the table and your uncle Bill would spout about immigrants and you would be whatever. And then you'd move on to sports. But in yeah. this case, now everything is a moral judgment. I can't sit at the same table with that person and then that escalated to this person is evil and I can't, I have to cut that person out of my life. And I think that's kind of what what we're seeing now is especially in the in the in this hyper woke thing. It's like we cannot have a discussion, period. And in fact, the discussion lends itself to oppression. Just merely questioning something is an attack. And um, but. The response, I think what's I think it's there's a really positive thing going on. The response of mockery and humor is taking that away because I even Bill Mars noticed it. They they're no longer funny because of this moral, this moral hysteria. And so all of their targets now, it's flipped. It's now like the radicals are are, I wouldn't say on the right, but libertarian, um, free thinking. Yeah, uh, illiberal. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Well, one, I, there's a few phrases that I think are useful around here. I heard the brilliant comedian Duncan Trussell say once, people have gone from woo to cue. Like people that were previously kind of into... Uh, meditation and psychedelics yeah. have become very anti-establishment now. There's this entirely new demographic. Um, and the other aspect of this is this hyper-moralizing, virtue signaling uh, uh, sort of and I would say there is a media. I would say it's a media construct, and a, you know, and potentially a, a, a movement with academia. Certainly, that would be the analysis of people that know more than me, like you know Jordan Peterson or uh, 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 Weinstein or whatever. Like that, they would say. Like that, that, that it seems that at least when it comes to the political and media class of this sort of neoliberal, um, you know, let's call it woke again, just for simplicity's sake, it doesn't seem that authentic. It, uh, like what I question is how much they actually do care about the rights of uh, people with different types of sexual identity or how much they actually do care about different races, cultural groups. You know, it doesn't make sense because ultimately I think we all know that 
these kind of uh, apparently neoliberal but self-regarding leftist thinkers and orators are ultimately undergirded by the same financial and corporate interests as everybody else. Still the military industrial complex, it's still big pharma. So whenever you see, so that's why it becomes deeply hypocritical in times of war and health crisis, because ultimately they will advocate for the interests of the pharmaceutical companies when in a health crisis, notably and obviously the pandemic. In a war, all of the peace and love language sort of melts away and is replaced by the kind of patriotic language that would have be- totally would have belonged to the Republicans of of the, you know, in the Iraq war period of like, your Cheney, Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld language of like, you know, it's not patriotic to talk like that. You're going to allow Putin. Putin will be marching on NATO countries. Uh, like you say, Greg, everything has flipped. And the part of the reason that it's flipped is because there was no moral, certain moral values there in the bloody first place. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting to see, like, Ukraine's the best example, I think, of this, is to see people that were so anti-war accuse you of not being a patriot if you aren't supporting Ukraine. And it's like, it's not even our country. I always look over there and see that it's a fight among relatives. These are these are countries very, and we're, and we somehow, I think the United States is almost like a next door neighbor or a relative that's egging it on. And and for our own reasons, for the for to like was I can't remember who it was, the Secretary of State saying, like, the good news is we're getting billions of dollars into our country. And he was talking about the upside of war is that we get the we get we make profits off war. No one really has ever said that out loud. Yeah. And I think he I, I don't even know if he act if he even Anthony, what's his Blinken? Blinken I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know if he knew that he said it at the time, but he says, hey, we're doing great off this. Why are you guys complaining? So, well, there's 500,000 people dead. But I, I want to touch on something you said, and this is going to be a generalization, but I don't care. Uh, I do think the reason why it's, to me, it's inauthentic is I do think, and maybe this is like a Jordan Peterson-y thing, kind, kind of, but there's an empty hole. When you see a lot of, the really strident voices. There is something missing in their lives. And uh, and they fill that bucket up with this kind of purpose, which really isn't a purpose. It's just where they place their, their emotional meaning for attention. So they get the attention for whatever screaming they're doing. And I think... At the end of the day, they're not really happy people. They haven't found peace in their lives, uh, in their family life, in their and it might not even be their fault. It could be our society has created a a, a, a a weird environment where some people can't find meaning anymore and are are lost. And so they put it in these, well, the false idols of politics. I mean, they they that politics becomes their religion. But the only problem with their religion is that there's no forgiveness. So that's the, like the wokeism is a religion without forgiveness. If you violate the original sin of oppression, your, your, your uh, ancestors uh, are, are guilty, whether it's the, whether it's Jews or it's uh, whites in the United States, there's no forgiveness. So you constantly have to uh, uh, take on the role of oppressor. It is a religion without confession or without forgiveness. And I, but I think people treat it as a religion until maybe I, I hope that like there's so many young people 
that are into this kind of phase. And I can't help but think it's it's filling up something in their lives that isn't being uh, filled by other things. And I think it's also I think it's relationships. I think a lot of these people do not have relationships in their lives, people they can talk to, because like a friend, a friend would tell you, you know, Greg, you shouldn't be sticking. You shouldn't be gluing your hands to a painting or you shouldn't. Why are you blocking traffic of people who are trying to get to work? Friends would actually say that to you, but it seems like that's missing in people's lives. You need somebody to tell you you're being an idiot, even though they say, I admire the cause, but you know that in Gaza, they don't care if you're blocking traffic. I have a, some, yes, it does. And I have some thoughts on that, as you might imagine, Greg, just because I don't know anything about a subject, that doesn't mean I won't have an opinion on it. And I, I think it's a kind of natural end point to obsessive individualism, the kind of culturally immersive narcissism, which, of course, by its nature, we must all fall to a degree prey to. And I would say that part of my own journey is my own wrestling with that kind of um, locked in solipsism as if you're wearing an Oculus or some VR helmet where you're just obsessed continually with self. If a culture offer, if a culture stripped of God, stripped of community, stripped of patriotism, stripped of failure, off a family offers you only as the only sort of the optimal experience is self-fulfillment. You fulfill your own sexual identity, your own gender identity, your own cultural or racial identity. These are all beautiful and noble ideas. People's sexuality is beautiful people's culture is beautiful I, I i always take recourse to like you know like to ethnographics and anthropology and think well how did we live for tens of thousands or possibly hundreds of thousands of years small groups of 100 or 200 people that you know would have interacted with other tribal groups perhaps through trade perhaps sometimes through warfare but there's nothing in our evolution that has prepared us to be confronted with a variety of cultures and being told that that culture is adverse to us this is something that was written about extensively notably by uh, Edward Said who did, like, in his book uh, what did it what was that called Orientalism sort of pointed out how the West was condemnatory of like uh, Eastern culture and the post-Ottoman Empire Islamic culture uh, that we assumed that our cultural trajectory was better and he as a sort of a Muslim living in the West sort of said well there's different perspectives we're not allowing people to have a different perspective on reality we've reached the point now where people are happy to say there's no such thing as God that 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 ration the the ration to, to sort of mangle C.S. Lewis the rationalism that we use to posit that there can be no God is itself evolved from a god from a godless set of meaningless processes that a set of random processes led to a consciousness that is able to ascertain that there is no meaning and no purpose in the world and i think that when you live in a world where all that matters is the fulfillment of your own desires the avoidance of your own fears so there is you end up with these odd cultural movements and artifacts which as you say take on the practice aesthetics and appearance of a religion zeal evangelism certainty mm. but without the important valves and checks that are embedded in religions to ensure that we don't 
regard the your in, one's individual identity as the summit and apex of all potential experience. All of us are temporal temporal expressions of something greater, and that can be used to mobilise people to fight for a nation. That can be used to um, turn people into racists. That can be used for a whole variety of things. But what it could be better utilised for is our life should be dedicated to service, and when inevitably, because of biology and because of cultural conditioning we start thinking the only thing that matters is what russell wants this is a time to start employing some principles to get my myself out of that illusion but no one will do that now because galvanized evangelical awakened people are a threat to the globalist establishment elites that are able to implement their goals and agenda because of this disparate and atomized population that's my theory greg gutfield I agree. I, I would say that I would younger when I was younger, I was guilty of this same thinking um, for uh, two, two points. One, like when when you were when I was like 15 or 16, my identity was like a band. Like I would sit and I would just write the clash on everything that I owned, just write it. Over. And that was I. I was a clash fan. I needed an identity because I didn't feel I had one. And then I became a punk rocker. I, I, I clinged on to things that as almost like as identity markers. And you can kind of see that now because you can see it as a contagion, at least in the United States, where young women and it, like they, they were doing studies where they now identify as non-binary as though and it, it, it's like doubling every year and it becomes like a costume uh, because they are rejecting whatever was there before, and I, I there's a this, there's a, a a theory from G.K. Chesterton. It's called I think it's called the fence uh, theory. It's like don't tear down a fence until you know why it was there in the first place. And I think what we're seeing with this kind of regressive progressivism is we're tearing down all these fences without ever understanding why they were necessary. So it was easy as a 17 year old to make fun of religion, to uh, make fun of your relatives or, or any kind of traditional stuff was a joke. What was I replacing it with? I had, I was too young. I didn't have a, I didn't have a, 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 a I hadn't, I didn't have any wisdom, but I had the ability to denigrate things that were there before. And of course, everything before was imperfect. We know that the United States was a melting pot, but it also had racist elements to it. Obviously, a legacy of slavery. But the melting pot is way superior to the, this, this potpourri of identities. Like the, 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 the melting pot was about people who were different coming together and cooperating and communicating. Now we have this thing where, no, you can't have a melting pot. We have to be separate. And the idea of cooperation and assimilation means that you're giving in to the oppressor, even being like even trusting somebody who's trying to help you is seen as oppression. I mean, that is like that is a, uh, a, a new thing that I'm seeing. Like, you know, you can't trust a white person because they're white. And it's like you do realize that, you know, white people like anybody else are here to help. Generally, they're like, they're, it's hard to find any, but I mean, most people just want to help. But we're saying that that's not, that's, there's an underlying oppression going on. 
That's and that's dividing us. And the I think the melting pot idea is under threat. And it kind of scares me because that's the only thing that really holds us together is the idea of communication, cooperation, the idea of helping others. Uh, you know, and and in in what you were talking about too is kind of like the the most dangerous thing is one's ego, uh, feeding that ego. And I mean, I was one of those people. And the moment you let go of that, it's probably the most freeing thing anybody can do in their lives is to let go of that ego and look outward. And all of a sudden, these identity markers kind of float away. And, and you suddenly see that everybody is basically in the same boat. And that's a that's a good thing. And then the next step is service, being able to help people. I sound very new agey, but it's kind of like it's not new agey. It's the it's just kind of what we had before. But I don't know. Yes, I'll Greg. Stop. I I suppose that only a maniac would deny that there was not a vast project of colonialism and imperialism that uh, exploited, killed, enslaved hundreds of thousands, millions, millions of people. But similarly, only a lunatic or a fool would believe that the best way to navigate and placate the legacy of that would be through globalist conglomerates and global organizations and corporations. The, the, mm -hmm. the sort of the utilization of these kind of ideas through massive corporations and global NGOs suggests to me that the agenda is not about individual freedom, but in fact, the opposite of it. Now, um, Greg, Greg, to pivot slightly, one of the sort of great cultural moments of the last few years, which I think has shown us how legacy media and independent media are rubbing against one another and affecting one another has been uh, Tucker Carlson's departure from the Fox network and his establishment of his own uh, news network or his own channel, certainly, and his own relationship with X and social media. As a person that works within Fox, I you know, saw and we talked about the bit, and that's, that's when I called you, in fact, Greg, when you said about, like, you know, I have two words for you, Tucker Carlson, you know, like, like when, you know, like that corporate interests will censor um, voices that are anti-war or anti-pharma or, you know, like antithetical to their interests. Tell me now what you think of Tucker Carlson's time at Fox exemplifies and what his departure from Fox means without getting yourself in trouble because I realize you've got a job. Yeah. Uh, what I was referring to, and it's it's common knowledge, and he's talked about it, is that gal galvanizing advertisers against you over time will is meant to destroy you. It's meant to censor you. And I think that there was... This was building and building, and it was, you know, Media Matters and other groups had targeted him. And that's where I said, like, you know, I think when I was talking about two words, I was talking about that's what happened to Tucker. Over time, you know, they just wore it down. And for him to survive and everybody who is, I would say, interesting uh, has a, uh, an original point of view for them to survive, it has to be untethered from advertising. It has to be because advertisers are now the censors and they're not they're not 
Uh, they're not brave. Uh, I think this goes back to what we were talking about, this the kind of the wokeism. They embraced the wokeism kind of as a Trojan horse to protect themselves from their profit making, the rent seeking. Uh, they can point to the fact that they're, look, we have DEI, we have equity hires, we're good. Um, we have these special days in our company. But meanwhile, they're doing exactly what a corporation does, which is the bottom line to grow their influence and their power. I think um, I and, and I think Tucker has said this, so I'm not I, I'm not uh, I don't it's not just my opinion. It wasn't about Fox. Fox never told him what he couldn't say, but you could tell from the advertising and the pressure on him that that was that was, uh, in my opinion, uh, the leading pressure on on his exit. But I don't have proof that they you know, there was a meeting. I just like he to this day still doesn't know. And but I do think that like Fox never told him he couldn't say anything. No one's ever told me I can't say anything. For example, when I said his name, people thought, oh, my God, oh, my God. I never they were like, whatever. That's what you can do. That's that's why we have you here. And I think I made it clear that it was it was more about this pressure from advertisers. And I knew this in magazines, you know, that that, you know, advertisers hate the customer, which is so strange. They really hate the customer. They think you're stupid. Uh, they don't want to be near the editorial that the customer likes because somehow we're, we're Neanderthals. And that was true in when I was at Maxim. It was true when I was at Men's Health. The stuff that sold the magazine, advertisers hated. So you ended up with magazines like GQ or Esquire, which nobody read, but was were this thick, filled with advertising, because that's what it was. And I think you see that in, in broadcasting, that those with the most advertising tend to have the, the emptiest editorial. There's no perspective. There's nothing that like interests you. And once you get in, once you get interesting or you dare to get, get outside this circle, then it flips on you and then they come after you. And I think that's why. So Russell uh, uh, Tucker going and creating his own network, what you are doing on Rumble, what Dave Rubin is doing, what Joe Rogan is doing, what the Weinsteins are doing. That's like creating this whole new world where people can go and create their own thing, get their own subscriber base and make a living in a career without having to think about upsetting a soap company, you know, or a shoe company. Meanwhile, the shoe company is having shoes made by, you know, 12 year olds, but they're lecturing you on diversity and equity, but who's making their their shoes, <laughs> you know, or drug companies, you know, the drug companies, you know, why are they advertising? They're advertising to exert some kind of pressure. Sometimes it's weird. I don't know if you see these drug companies. It's focusing on like one drug that like nobody has ever heard of or used, but they're still advertising. Do you ever notice that? Like some of these drugs, you're like, are there really a lot of schizophrenics? Like, you know, I mean, they'll do a drug for like a very specific kind. I'm like going, are they, are, is a schizophrenic watching this show and going, ah, I don't know if that's the case. I just think it's there to, as a presence to say, hey, we're here. We're here. Just a reminder, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, it's extraordinary the the way those models must function for there to be a constant ambient presence. Of, I understand mm-hmm. the cable news is, and I'll, I'll check the figure at some point, is 70% funded by Pfizer, not even Big Pharma. Pfizer specifically funds, I believe, 70% of cable news, and we're all familiar with that package where it's like, sponsored by Pfizer, and you see that sort of Anderson Cooper and like a variety of shows that are sort of covered. And yes, you're right that their pressure can't be the sort of just the bespoke amplification of a certain product. It's not telling a marketplace, hey, if your skin of friend is schizophrenic, this is available for you. you know, that's, it's no longer about utility. It's become somehow more immersive than that. We were just doing a piece on like Google buying up real estate and creating company towns now, like a, a project that's you know been tried before with, with Disney and curiously chocolate companies like the power of the corporation is becoming deeply immersive and Greg within that you touched upon something while talking about Tucker and talking about the relationship between advertisers and broadcasters which is fundamentally the dynamic that is shifting with the emergence of independent media uh, that, that I think is significant that both the sort of the marketing class and the professional journalist class I might say hate ordinary people they hate their audience and I feel this antipathy and I spoke to Greenwald about it that other great GG in the public space uh, Glenn Greenwald and he said that you know that the establishment now is no longer sort of masking its disdain for ordinary people that they sense that through media control through censorship laws through increasing authoritarianism justified by crisis they don't need to be like a rockefeller tossing dollar bills out of a passing limo to maintain some plutocrat mystique and affability with ordinary people now they're just like we're going to have so much power you know after the next set of wars or the next pandemic or whatever the next thing's going to be that legitimizes more authoritarianism that there's no need for to maintain good public relations i think too that you know, as a person that's like with the, what's happened to me recently and sort of over the past few years, that as you sort of gently or migrate out of like, oh, you know, like, you know, like there comes a point where I feel, oh, I ain't going on those talk shows no more. I'm not going, I'm not going to be doing movies anymore. And like you gain, I gained in confidence and started to criticize war, started to criticize farmers, started to attack more and more, recognizing oh, I have direct access to an audience. And one of the things that I've noticed having been the subject to, in, incredible attacks and what seemed to me to be a coordinated media attack where separate media companies explicitly work together over several years to generate anonymized complaints and allegations and then there was a sort of a global two-week period where like it was very very concentrated and it seemed to me at least very deliberate to like, like to be able to observe oh wow there's a point where they will just attack you and shut you down that there is that there's an attempt to do that and one of the things i also have noticed is that the media is not the public that's one of the things they're terrified of is that they can create this sort of layer of hate and bombast and attack and then you go out and everyone's hey how's it going <laughs> <Woo! Yes. laughs> like people like that's not yeah it's not they don't have the control that they once had and i think that's what's terrifying you could, them you could, be, you could be in a news cycle for 48 hours and in th- your in your brain think I can't go outside. Yeah. And then you go outside and maybe you might casually mention it to somebody and they have n- no idea what you're talking about. Like don't I will say something on the five and it will explode and then I and uh and then you know my people at work will be like oh my god you see what's and then but 
If you go anywhere, nobody knows what you're talking about. Think about what happened to you, but think about, I hate to use the word weaponization because it's overused, but the weaponization of wokeism has become journalism. So it's like, so-and-so said this, so-and-so did this in the past, becomes investigative journalism, whereas before, like you had the Woodwards and the Bernsteins. There are a few people now, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger. These are guys that are actually doing real journalism, but they're being ignored by the conventional mainstream media, which has decided that the weaponized woke angle, so-and-so said this about immigration, ergo racist, or any, pick any, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, and that, and it's such an easy story to write. It's like you can, you can take a dartboard, or actually, you can take a grid, and on one side you can go climate, economics, politics, fashion, food, comedy, and then on this other grid you could have race, racism, homophobia, feminism, and then you could throw a dart. And this is what journalists do, and they find the cross section. Clothing is transphobic. And they had that story for that day. And then they'll go, they'll do a little search. They'll find some stuff and then they write it. They don't have to call anybody. They don't have to do any, like, they don't have to be like a reporter and go out and actually talk to somebody with a notebook. This is now what journalism has become. And so what happens is how does that end up being dangerous? They focus it not on just like people like you, but just regular people, the people they hate. So if somebody on Twitter, some nobody, a plumber, decides he's pro-Trump, then somebody will pick up that tweet, go, does American Plumbing Supply realize that Joe Stevens actually said, make America great again, and they CC the company, and then that guy gets swarmed, or this bakery uh, had a, uh, you know, a menorah, I don't know. They were like, they, they like focus on these things, and then they amp... What they do is they amplify it. And so the regular people that they despise learns never to touch that stove again. Uh, and that's the self-censorship. And I'm just going to go back to my life. Why did I go online? Why did I say that? I'm just going to shut up. So it, the media has become an engine of censorship on behalf of whoever they're working for. Uh, and also it becomes their work too. They feel like when they get a scalp, it's actually enriching to them. There are, comp there are blog, like the Daily Beast, uh, like these are you know companies where they, that's all they do all day is they watch TV or they watch podcasts and then they clip and they put it out there and they act as though that is journalism. And media analysis, media analysis is a form of journalism, but at least you should do the work. It's not just clipping, but it's weaponized this it's weaponized wokeism to shut people up. And it's disguised, however, as journalism when it's not. I heard the phrase vendetta journalism recently applied to I think it might have been the case between the, the royal family and the sort of tabloids of the 10 years ago or so in my country here. And it's also clear that 
that you know you sort of talked about sort of Bernstein and Woodward that there's very little journalism where for example you know you can watch the pan the reporting in the pandemic the propaganda that accompanied the uh, advent and release of the vaccines the censorship around legitimate questions the shaming of people from whatever community this is like because there are no values at the core of it you have to watch them adjust as they go oh people aren't taking vaccines those people are not participating those people don't care about society then the information comes out it's a high incidence of African-Americans that won't take it. Uh, shit. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. How are we going to pivot? This doesn't make sense. You know, I like, you know, various conflicts around the world that don't align entirely with this sort of odd, sort of ultra anti-nature. This, I guess what it, part of it is, part of this kind of curious death cult that's, a, that's built, which is not a new thing. Apocalypse, you know, in a, you know, what is an apocalyptic, uh, like apocalyptic preaching? The, the end is nigh. The world is coming to an end. The end is nigh. That is a sort of a sort of a pretty common trope, certainly in the last couple of thousand years. Indeed, one could argue that even within, you know, Christianity has the apocalypse, the rapture, or many religions appear to have this sort of end time as sort of part of their, uh, you know, as part, of, part of the paradigm. But when there is like all of those things tend to point you towards a journey of self-evaluation, a recognition that the pursuit of animalism is... And, and animal desires cannot of itself form your way of life. And I, I would say that that is precisely at the core of modern neoliberalism. The fulfillment of your desires, the avoidance of your fears and the potential to be threatened is your raison d'etre. That is what it is. You are worth it. If you want to be this type of person, you should be that type of person. And these are things that I can easily agree to in the, with a wave of a hand. Oh, like, you know, of course, I agree with individual liberty, whether it's the issues that define the right or the issues that define the left because I agree with individual liberty but I don't think that that is the apex of the human experience because I've tried it, that's why, because I've tried it, I've tried, drink as much as you can, take as many drugs as you can sleep with as many people want to sleep with you as possible, I've tried these things and indeed when part of the message becomes these things won't work for you, find a higher purpose knowing that you will never be able to live it perfectly because you are still subject to the sort of same kind of shackles that any human being is like that's when you start to become a, a, a threat yeah and uh not to get too well the i've noticed when people go through that journey and come out of it they're much less judgmental politically and they're more resistant to getting involved in this prison of two ideas whether it's about climate or uh, any kind of like issue where you think there are two sides and you have to get into one pocket or this one and that's it. Uh, for some reason, I, I, you know, it's kind of a superpower. I've noticed, like I noticed this with, with Tucker, I noticed it with you and, and uh, there are other people, it's, it's kind of like they, yeah, the floating above this or, or to the outside of it and can see what this is, at, what this actually is, which is a diversion from actually solving the bigger problem. And I, I mean, I was in that prison of two ideas. A good example would be, you're talking about apocalypse, the apocalyptic uh, uh, ideologies, like, Climate change, you know, 
because of the the apocalyptic warnings created these the, the the prison of two ideas i was in the other side that this was all bogus and a hoax but that's not necessarily the best place to be because there's got to there, you should care about the environment you should worry about these things there is evidence that there are changes going on how like but i i got into my my prison because the other prison was so apocalyptic like i couldn't buy into these people telling me that I can no longer use this or that because we're all going to die in 12 years, in 15 years. So those those apocalyptic visions create or uh, predictions create this kind of opposite side. And it it's like the death of progress. That's why I kind of like, like RFK has said, has said some things that sounded apocalyptic, but I think he's changed. I think that when I listen to him, he's a true environmentalist mm. without being reliant on climate, on like inaccurate climate models. He just talks about the stuff that he knows that he's been through. You know, he's been, you know, from the beginning in environmental. He's somebody I can listen to. And he listens to me. I mean, he listens to people like me. He doesn't brand me like there were people that used to say that if you were skeptic, if you were a climate skeptic, remember that you would use that phrase, a climate skeptic, you should be imprisoned like this is like an or a climate denier, which would put you in the same you know realm as a Holocaust denier. Those were the phrases they used. And that would just create a complete negative reaction. But I think now we're getting to a, a place where there I mean, there's a healthy meeting of the minds where on the right people are talking about the environment seriously and on the left there are people hopefully saying you're right this is not these climate models have been wrong uh but there's still something going on here but i think that that's that you know that has always been the problem but the superpower is stepping out of that and i think that's what you were getting at is like you somehow got out of that and you can look down at it or look I don't want to say down at it, but look at it from a side and see how wasteful this prison is, this prison of two ideas is. Yes. And there's a lot of things I would love to respond to. One is like that where you said that uh, that there was sort of an attempt to criminalize climate denying and there was an attempt to criminalize not taking the vaccine. There are ongoing attempts to criminalize uh, speech, you know, through the ideas right. of hate speech. And in some territories, these are extremely amorphous and oddly util laws. Like in Ireland, if they suspect you have hate speech material on your phone, the police will be able to come into your house and take your devices. That's a, like that's authoritarianism. Now, whether it's you know vaccines, in the event that vaccines were stopping transmission and were effective, of course, the, the strong advocacy for those medications would be legitimate. But it, what what one starts to see is the reason behind the reason they're giving you. They might be giving you, we have to do something to protect the planet. And, and as you say, that is not a partisanal issue, whether or not we love the earth that we live on. If you are the most MAGA cap wearing, let's shoot some deer and some ducks and some like, let's go crazy hunting, you love the planet. Or if you are a vegan Birkenstock wearing individual, you still love the planet. The idea of this being politicised and partisan is extraordinary. And what's happening, because I think of the uh, quick response time and 
a rapid reaction of independent media. In real time, you're starting to see people say, hold on a minute, this Ukrainian war, it doesn't make sense because in 2014 there was a coup and NATO did uh, renege on certainly verbal deals between the Soviet Union and US or in climate change. How come all of these laws are penalising ordinary people and seem designed to create 15-minute cities and restrictions on people's movement? How come these vaccines seem to be tied to ID cards and being able to like to normalize the idea the vaccinated should be unvaccinated should be shamed they shouldn't be allowed into hospitals they should be imprisoned they shouldn't get treatment they should like they're starting to normalize the criminalization of sections of the population you marry that to the idea that the MAGA movement, which at the last election was pretty near 50%, one side or the other, of the entire electorate was like a, a criminalised class or a demonised class. You're starting to use the kind of language that we all, uh, like, you know, which was reprehensible in my view around like, you know, oh, these people are all terrorists when talking about like entire nations of people. You're seeing it applied to domestic classes. Now, that's not a coincidence because we now know that agencies that were dedicated to um, uh, legitimising the pursuit of certain uh, foreign interests uh, you know, that didn't go well, for example, in Iraq, are now turned in on domestic populations. That's not just in your country, but in mine. There are units of, like, like counter-terror became counter-COVID. This is stuff we've done content on. It's observable. So if you can criminalise an entire population, of course you have, to, you have to increase authoritarianism. And that's the goal. So I guess one of my questions, as well as whatever responses you want to have, is what kind of tyranny and dictatorship do you most fear? The populism of Trump, which were, you know legacy media are spending a lot of time, we called it a dictator month, like it was Shark Week. Every CNN or MSNBC show is Trump's good like Mussolini, Trump's like Mao. Or is it a kind of more technical, technological dictatorship, a kind of technocratic cadre of a, you know, an aristocratic class that are telling you this is the reason we have to control you. This is the reason you have to take these medications. This is the reason you have to stay in your house. What form of dictatorship is most likely? I, I know you've got a lot to respond to there, Greg. That's a lot. I obviously, the, for me, it would be the latter because everyone, you know, when you when you see the media going after Trump, there's not a shred of evidence because they have four years to look back on. Uh, he was the he was the in my opinion the most transparent politician. You knew everything about him because. He never had an unspoken thought. Everything he, everything that was going through his head, he would say something, and then the media would pick it apart. They would, they would, and they, they would, they would also distort it. Um, but you know, it's like I had Greenwald on my show, in which I apologized to him for what uh, what you were getting at, which was he was warning that the kind of uh, 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 focusing on the like entire groups of people being terrorists was going to one day be turned on Americans themselves. And I remember laughing at that and I was obviously wrong. And I had to go like, Jesus Christ, this just came true in my lifetime. I'm watching it. The criminalization of people for supporting a politician, for not getting a vaccine, um, people like rooting for the death of people or when they die, they say, ha ha ha, he didn't get the vax. You know, however, if anybody had done that about a different behavior that caused their death, oh, you'd be like, if you happen to be a criminal who died that and you said, well, you know, you live the life, you would be attacked. But but if you didn't get the vex, you know, and also to the, the you talked about speech, 
I've noticed it's it's it, the the description of hate speech got so big, and then it kind of changed into misinformation. Now it's misinformation, and I love how they say misinformation and disinformation, and then they like to go on what the difference is, and it's just like basically what they're saying is if you disagree with us, that's misinformation. Uh, if your counterpoint is disinformation. So that's actually now the same as hate speech. You can you can you can be criminalized. You should be banned or blocked from social media. This is why I like what Tucker, I mean, what Elon did with X, with the community notes, is exactly what you're talking about. When the independent media comes back and says, "Wait, hold on a second. Now we have that almost in real time. You'll have somebody like Biden come on and say something that's completely false or whoever's posting for him. And then within minutes, community notes comes up and just says, nope, you're wrong. And it took that, it took the power away from their misinformation. I'm fine with their misinformation. I'm fine with their disinformation. I don't want to ban it, but don't call us out on, on the same thing when we call you out. And to your point, everything is now political. Your health is political. Uh, they politicized, like, just the environment. Every These are all things that we should agree with. They politicized crime. It, it, it should be, if you're a victim of crime, that should be basically the, the primary focus. But when you talk about a victim of crime, and it could be a woman, it could be an Asian woman, they go, well, yeah, but you look at the criminal, look at society. We have to deal with this. The prisons are oppressive. Uh, bail, the guy, you know, the, well, the guy was out on bail when he pushed the woman in front of the subway. And they go, well, that they, suddenly that becomes a political thing. And now when you have uh, crime going up in, in, in specific cities, that suddenly becomes a political issue. And you, you have to defy your own common sense. You have politicians that know it's unsafe in D.C., but they can't talk about it because now it's a political issue. To have a kind of set of clear and reliable values, and it seems so obvious that it's um, ridiculous that it has to be stated, you should be able to cross out the word Trump or Biden and just say, this thing happened. Primaries were cancelled in Florida. Is that good mm -hmm. or bad? And you don't, shouldn't. Right. And you should, that's actually bad because it's not democratic. Won't participate in debates. Uh, cre or created tax cuts for the richest sector of society while in office. You should be able to say mm -hmm. it without. You know, didn't deal with the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, they, like continued with a bit of legislation. It shouldn't matter because what's happened is is we've allowed our perspective to be magnetized. Po polarity. I've heard is a requirement for energy. Without polarity, you cannot have energy. And it's as if we're being sort of trapped in an, sort of an odd field of that, that makes it impossible for us to progress. The word I keep returning to and the idea I keep returning to, Greg, is decentralization because it's the only way. And the people that I've spoken to on the right, it seems, are more amenable to this than elsewhere. It's the only way to diffuse this is if you say, look, why don't we put aside what your feelings are on, gosh, guns, abortion, the environment, immigration, whatever it is, gender identity, religious identity. 
and just say, would you stand on a platform, an anti-establishment platform that's ultimately about bringing control as close to your community and your individual life as possible? That's that's should be perhaps that is perhaps one way of diffusing this. There are some areas where a degree of centralized authority is useful. National defense, law and order, the building of roads, hospitals. There are all sorts of areas. But. Uh, there have been experiments where people have democratized, the bu- for example, the distribution of budgets. And it seems to me that what's being resisted here is, like you said, when talking about a me- the ec- new economics that have emerged in media, what's being resisted is, hold on, look at what happened in Napster, look at what happened with the Arab Spring, look at what happened with Brexit, Trump, Syriza, Podemos, left, right, the Occupy movement. The technology means now that people can form consensus, people can form communities and buy bypass the old centralized elites, whether it's media or state or corporate. New technology exists that facilitates localism, that facilitates communities that are like, oh, you might be Amish, you might be LGBTQ+, you might want to live in a racially determined community of any hue. And I suppose that's possible if you that's the your vision for your community. What we, it seems to me that's impossible is marshalling communities of a hundred million or 300 million or 60 million around one idea that requires the demonization of the other 50% of the population. How can you ever have freedom with, with that dynamic? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I was, while you were talking, I was just thinking about this, that what, right now what you're seeing is the decentralization of, I would say of media, obviously. Uh, and through the internet and social media, you're seeing, People, it's like the democratization of voices, literally. People have their own voice. And so what you're talking about is probably this terrified reaction that you can't have that. You cannot have that. And so that's when you de- that's when you marshal the forces of demonization using wokeism as kind of an engine or, a, or, or, the, or the weapon to go after these individual voices because they're outside the 100 million uh, that they're trying to keep together. And so what happens is they also create these little wars between identity blocks. Maybe that will keep that that will keep these democratic these the democratization of voices from spreading. One point though, you you know that you talked about polarity, you know, that's the way things like had morphed in cable news where you know you had uh, Fox News and MSNBC. MSNBC wasn't always left wing. I mean, Tucker was on it. Uh, and 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 then uh, and then you had uh, CNN had to find CNN kind of like deflated because it it didn't know where it was and then it just went far left. But what was interesting, who's the most success, the most successful cable host probably in modern history was Tucker, the most anti polarity person. What was interesting about his show and you I, I don't know if you were I think you were on it, but he led the charge of breaking out of that polarity. Like he would take, like he would take positions that other anchors at Fox wouldn't, or he would find himself on the other side of a lot of things or just on no side and just asking the questions. He was so, he was proof that you could be anti-polarity and the audience would crave it. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, I love Tucker. And it's like, but you, and a right winger would say that. And then a left winger would say that. 
It was it, it was proof that it worked for a time anyway, until the advertisers started to scare themselves. Like they would they would like if one advertiser dropped, then another one would drop. They all got terrified and they ran. But he he proved that you could get energy. He broke out of the like you said, you get energy in this and you make you make money off this. But he somehow decided or he knew or he always was that way, got out of it and showed that it could work, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. And what is clear in cable news in particular, and a lot of these ideas I first saw articulated well in the book, The Revolt of the Public by Martin Gurry, which it seems most people are kind of aware of now, was that cable news, of course, had to become, they no longer had to, like, I even remember when I first worked in Hollywood, that there were famous movie stars that were Republican, and they would just keep quiet about that shit, like, you know, and they would be sort of all cool, and it'd be okay, like, and then sort of something happened where late night tv say they just went we're not even gonna cater to the idea that people might be watching this that anything other than what we know the entertainment industry is which is the kind of democrat where it's sort of a vocal concern for social justice as long as it doesn't have any kind of impact i mean it's it's clear to me that that, that what globalism is predicated upon is in particular through organizations like the wef is like how do we talk the talk without ever having to pay the tax without ever having to make the compromise how do we have it that you have an environmental conference to stop climate change where everyone arrives in private jets and no one gives a shit about that or sees that as a- any kind of problem how we never address the idea that it's the top one percent that creates over 60 percent of carbon emissions and if carbon emissions are the problem then we're the problem and you wouldn't showcase solutions that are about impeding individual freedom of ordinary people across the world you would showcase solutions that are about changing institutional energy crises and various crises in the very top tiers of society it's just a coup and because of independent media I think Greg and because of this new sort of this breakout voices that can appeal to uh, people across the spectrum it's become clear that you don't need to just limit yourself to what would once, you know, it would have been Noam Chomsky saying, you know, where both sides agree, you have no choice at all. It would have been Naomi Klein of the left saying, oh, crises are induced so to legitimise authority. All that discourse now, that's, you know, that's on the right now. That is, it's so odd to me as a person to just see that, you know, the left won't touch any of that. They'll just vote along with more war, more regulation, more authority, more establishment. It's weird. It, it has been a complete flip. You know, and and um, I was just thinking about the no impact on other on themselves in terms of, of, of embracing social social justice. Just seeing politicians say they're going to ban gas stoves and then they send out pictures of themselves cooking their holiday meal on a gas stove and they don't even see it because the assumption is they're somehow immune yeah. to the very thing that they're telling people uh you have to do this. I don't have to do it. Yeah. Obviously, the everybody's talked enough about Gavin Newsom going to the French Laundry. But that's I mean, it's because it's true. People were locked down. You know, my sister couldn't see her husband in the hospital while that was going on. And, and you know, it, it, it it's like they somehow they, they promote these social justice issues 
in a way to keep themselves immune from one day being under the thumb of that very, they, they want the activists at bay so they can do it. One thing I noticed, and it, I, I don't, this may be politically incorrect, but like even in, in Hollywood movies, so I watched, I've watched a couple of movies this weekend and to justify the action and violence in movies, they now have female characters who can beat up men, like, like, like women at half the size, just taking out dudes and they're like, and I go like, that's just not possible. But I understand why it's there. It's like, we we have to do this. And it's like, well, now we can do these, you know, incredibly, uh, the same the same hyper violent movies, but at least we have diversity. We have a, a woman who weighs 110 pounds, tossing a 210 pound guy against the wall, doing all this stuff. And it's like, I don't buy it. It's just not, I, I don't buy it. Just watch any 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 real fight, but that's what they have to do. Celebrities, like you were saying, they they in Hollywood will reach out to me, tell me that they love my show, but will never do it. They are surrounded by the worst type of people. Publicists and PR folks in Hollywood are there to protect themselves from being original. Just keep your head down. I don't care if you I don't care if you have an opinion, but look what happened to this person. If you go on Gutfeld's show, you're fucked, you know, and it's like I have people that will be scheduled to do my show and then cancel, mm. you know. And by the way, I get it. I mean, in general, like you don't need to be doing me a favor. I really don't care. I just said it might be fun to talk to you. But then there are some that are brave. And then the moment they come on my show. The phrases from Hollywood be, oh, he used to be funny. Oh, he's, you know, he's, uh, has been, he's now like, he's now moving towards the shortest line, which is right-wing comedian, or, you know, they like, they, um, they will, they will strip you of your, of your successful career. If you do my show, that's the punishment it's implied. And it's all done by journalists. It's all done by, you know, entertainment media. We'll make sure you get punished if you, uh, if you veer off the, you know, the uh, Kimmel Colbert plantation, you know, or whatever you want to call it. It's interesting because in the end, I wonder when the economics will be impacted, that, that when people will go, hold on. There's an audience. There's a market. Now, what I suppose previously existed was the presumed lack of choice and the control. You, This is what you're going to watch because this is all you can watch. Now you can watch Joe Rogan having like, you know, say, for example, in the pandemic period, he's got Robert Malone, there's Peter McCulloch, there's a Jay Bhattacharya, there's all these legitimate voices from academia and science that are not towing the line on a subject like the pandemic. And suddenly what they sense is, oh, no, we've lost control of that space. They can con continue to control what you might call sort of the institutional media complex, but it's kind of losing its relevance. That's the trajectory, at least. And unless there are sort of the, the successful ability to cancel, the su successful implementation of censorship laws, then you can see which way it's going. Like things like whether it's Anthony Oliver or Sound of Freedom, these are sort of death knell cultural moments of like, oh, shit, people can bypass it. It can be bypassed. You can have, like you said, the trajectory and tendency would of course be towards like, you know, if you take something that's less controversial, like sport, you know, if you're a fan of 
the West Ham United or the 49ers or whatever, you can like watch just that content. You can watch that content. There's a channel for you. You can watch things that no one else would dream of watching. Niche content available. This, that, this ability to sort of become really who you are and to potentially systemize it is a massive threat to homogenous blobs of corporately funded, donor class, financially allied, weapons, military-industrial complex sponsored political organisations. If people start to, not only in recreational activities, but in their in their cultural identity, be able to form communities that are untethered from these kind of complexes, it's the end. It's the end of it. Like, and, and you can only maintain that, I think, through massive fear and massive control. And, and I think what happened in the pandemic period is it was rev- like, as the great George Carlin always says, no conspiracy is required where interests converge. We saw, oh, look, media interests, state interests, big pharma interests converge, in particular when it comes to controlling a population, when it comes to crushing opposition these interests all come together yeah and you know it, what you're what you're describing is true diversity so if there's true diversity of thought you will have communities so you have to create if you're in power an artificial diversity to group people by identity and ascribe that idea they have to have a specific ideology uh to keep themselves together so they don't venture into the true diversity of thought. So it to keep you from being into these, these, this kind of like florid, truly like thoughtful, amazing world. You have to, you have to create a parallel diversity environment so they can't. So I can't, but, but, COVID especially saw the contamination, saw people of different races and different religions. All of a sudden you have a black NBA athlete and a white farmer on the same side. That can't be. You can't have that. That's not supposed to work, you know? (laughs) And and also just watching how Fauci was so befuddled. He was like a great symbol of this kind of morass this this blob that like where is this animosity coming from how what why are people upset with me i'm shocked at this and it's like well you're missing out on everything right you are missing out those people have every right to be pissed off at you but he just did he was so removed from everything and that he found comfort in mainstream media he would go there and in the and the anchors would be oh, you're having a rough time, you know, Dr. Fauci, you know, all these people just don't understand the great work you're doing. And he's like, oh, they do the, the threats I'm getting. It's like <laughs> everybody gets threats. Everybody gets threats. You haven't lived until somebody said they're gonna kill you. That's just the way it is. But for him, like to go to be there and just go, like, oh my God, you know, my life is so hard. And he goes, Well, you have to understand that they don't trust you. And they have a right not to trust you. And they have a right to be angry. There are people that couldn't see their dying relatives because of what you proposed. And I know them. I mean, there are people who had to hold their hands of dying relatives in the last hour because they weren't allowed to see them. This was some. And meanwhile, you you expect me to believe that like that would have been 
enforced upon somebody like a Gavin Newsom or or any congressman. No, it was just the rest of us. Yeah, there's a, like you touched on that earlier, that all of this is predicated on the like much of this authoritarianism is predicated on the principle of exemption. Like this isn't this is for you. We, that's why we can censor speech, because we know what ideas you should be exposed to and what ideas you should. What's wrong with people hearing some information that isn't true and going, well, I don't know, man, maybe I believe that. Maybe I don't. I, that is it that they're trying to protect us from that information or is it that they're trying to prevent us having that information precisely because it is bloody true and is likely to generate a type of insurgency? Uh, you will enjoy the, a bit of content we did about Fauci. He did an interview with the BBC over here in this country. Um, and like the interview, Greg, it, like, it was beyond the puff piece and somewhere towards fellatio. They had the guy for over an hour. They like, you know, like they didn't once say, is it true that the Wuhan Institute of Virology received funding from the NIH and from DARPA. Is it true that you repress, suppress the lab leak theory, even though you yourself suspected that it might be true and were certainly at least discussing it? Is it true that you understood that there had been no clinically trial, clinical trials of the vaccine for transmission? Is there a distinction between the various batches? Is it true that lockdown was based on computer modeling, not empirical studies of ep epidemiology and how viruses behave? Is it true that you shut down the Balfour Declaration, even knowing that, vac that where, where, it was where it was discussed that lockdowns would not be effective and you shouldn't vaccinate during a pandemic. None of these questions, just like, do you power walk now? Do you work out? Oh yeah. my God, you're great. It was incredible to watch it take place and people are starting to sense it. I want to add to something you said a little earlier that what the other thing the pandemic revealed was a kind of unity that crossed the lines that are supposed to be in place. And and I'm reminded, like, you know, that, like, and therefore you have to mischaracterize, for example, anti-vaxxers. Anti-vaxxers has to become a synonym for MAGA Trump. And then you have to exactly. deal with the anomaly that, oh, hang on a minute, it's, uh, there's an unusual amount of vaccine hesitancy among yeah. African-American people, maybe because they've got a reason for not trusting the state. <laughs> Let's have a look at, little look at history. Ah, oh, yeah, this is starting to make sense now. Uh, we did a piece, like, earlier on sort of... Um, kind of FBI malfeasance and misuse of surveillance powers. And in it, it was revealed that they had infiltrated and spied upon BLM and January 6th protesters. So it doesn't matter. You might think you're all over that spectrum, but as far as the deep state and the globalist, the true power is concerned, you just some people that are making some noise. This noise is convenient right now. We'll allow it. This noise is convenient. We'll amplify it. This noise is, you know, they're just using faders. They don't care about individual freedom. They care about dominion and centralizing authority and legitimizing that process so you can bypass national sovereignty, let alone individual freedom. So you've got centralized authority at a global level. Forget like your individual community. It's They're taking it in the opposite direction than it's trying to travel in, i.e. the trajectory of technology is trying to take you towards true diversity, true community, real freedom. Oh, you're a whole Muslim community. Oh, you're a gay community. You're like, that is what could happen. Oh, you like to own guns. Oh, you, you've banned guns. Oh, you abortion at this time. Oh, abortion. Is, like, you know, this is, this could happen politically if people are willing to let go of judging other people and willing to bind and oppose true power. Yeah, I don't know if you've been following out here. There was a, uh, a mayor of Boston who had to defend her blacks or non-colored or no, non-white Christmas party. And and she only, she only had to defend it because 
she got caught. They sent the email out to white people by accident. So she got in trouble. And, and it, 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 it was just a perfect encapsulation of how far we have become, have come from like the melting pot to know uh, certain groups need to have their own Christmas party. And that's how we're going to be. You, um, the, the COVID lab leak, we have to remember, this is another example of how they weaponized wokeism, that if you brought up this is the in Greenwald brought, uh, mentioned this a long time ago. If you brought up that it was lab leak, that would then be tied to bigotry because it was the Chinese virus or whatever. You would be accused of being racist. However, then they would blame it on the wet market, which is culturally something that is China is known for. And somehow that wasn't racist. So you could say, no, no, like in the beginning, oh no, it's the wet market, it's the wet market. That's not racist. But if you say it's the lab, that's racist. <laughs> it didn't make no sense. No, even from the, because there is no true principle behind it, just a an agenda. Yeah. Greg, oh man, thanks for coming on here. In the, uh, and I guess you got up kind of early to do this. Not really. I mean, it's uh, what time is it? It's 11, uh, 11, 18 out here. I did get up, did a little exercise and I'm going to go back and exercise after this. What kind of exercise? What are you going to do? Some Fauci power walking? Exactly. I'm going to go to the indoor mall and just walk around with some little ankle weights. I'm mm -hmm. actually on. I do Peloton because it's uh, it's uh, easy. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you watch the instructor and not your own shows when you're doing that, Greg. Actually, you know what I do? I do listen to podcasts. Yeah, when I'm when I'm sitting there because I that that passes the time. Yeah, well, you know? well, I hope that you occasionally listen to ours in the same way that we always listen and observe your co your content. Greg, thanks for coming on here. Thanks for starting the new year so fantastically with us. Thank you very much for your support and being open hearted to me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm always here for you whenever you want. Whenever you're in town. Come and do the show. You're always welcome. Oh, thank you, Greg. That's beautiful. Thanks, man. I appreciate that.